here we sang the song that fit right perfectly with the message. Well, it happened again. Love, lift, love lifted me. I mean, that's exactly what the message is about. And so, isn't it amazing how God works, you know? Amen. You know, the unbeliever would never even begin to realize what it's like to be a Christian and to see God working in our hearts and our lives and see how that he constantly is coming behind and showing us that it's God and that we're just the instruments of God. And so he is able to show us with little things like that that he's right here in our midst. Do you know there are people that would give almost anything that they had just to sense what we sent here this morning and singing praise to God. They're looking all over the world. They're trying this and they're trying that to find something to fill an empty heart, you know, and to have something that they can say they, they feel joy about. I mean, we have it right here. <laughs> There's not a lot of us, but guess what? God is in the midst of us. That's what's important, isn't it? You know, I thought back to the, the very first time that I ever preached a little place in Sardis, Mississippi. And you know, the man that asked me to preach there, do you know that he could not even read and write? You know what he would do? He had a lady that would stand on the platform and he would call out the scripture. Uh, he, he didn't have what I've got here. <laughs> it wouldn't do him any good because he couldn't read it. But he would call the scripture out and the lady would read the scripture out of the Bible and he would preach on that scripture. He'd call another scripture out and she would read it out of the Bible and he'd preach on that scripture. Now, you tell me, how did he do that except God? Amen. There was no way possible that he would be able to do that. It had to be God. And I remember the first time going to preach at Sardis, uh, there was fear, but there was also, there was a great joy. And there was fear that I was going to fall flat on my face, you know, once I started. <laughs> you know, the fear of man is what I felt. But then, when I got up there, I sensed the presence of God, and all fear left. And God just took over and did it. And so we realize when God is for us, who can be against us? You know? They think that they're really doing something against Christians, that they're going to stop this. And how many years have they been trying to get rid of this? Ever since it came around, they've been trying to get rid of it. But you know what? They're not going to. The Word of God is forever. And we are forever. And it's God that initiated the church, not man. God is called the preaching. He is the one that started the church. Man cannot stop what God started. There's no way. And that's why when we come together and we meet, if it was just two people here, guess what? It would be the same spirit here. The Holy Spirit would be here. If this place was packed, it would be the same spirit. It's the same God. And he comes in, and you know what he does? He blesses us for our faithfulness when we sense his presence. And we're thankful for that Holy Spirit that we sense here when we're singing and worshiping and listening to the preaching. Because guess what? It's just like when I've done marriage ceremonies, and I tell those two people, I said, what you need most of all is the glue that will keep you together 
And that glue is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. The third member of your marriage is Jesus Christ. And when you have that glue in your marriage, then no matter what you go through, you still are as one because the Lord is keeping you united as one. And it's the same way. We're held together by a force greater than ourselves, and it's God Almighty. It's our faith, but it's God's power that is keeping us going. Because we've got everything around us trying to stop us. But guess what? You can't stop God. And the children of God, guess what? We know what the promises are. We're going to inherit eternal life. We're going to walk with him one day in heaven. We're going to see his face, as the Bible says. So we have much going for us this morning. I mean, you walk out those doors and everything hits you, all the negatives, right? But in here, what do we sense? God's presence. We know that God's going to get us through it. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. We know that we're going to be victorious in the end. And so let's keep our eyes on the Lord, okay? None of that was meant for this message this morning. But it was just something that I really felt in my heart, especially telling about the man that first asked me to preach and how I saw God working through that man. And, you know, today so many feel like you have to have all, you know, the pedigrees, I mean, all the education. And, of course, it all helps. But God can take the simplest person and use them for his glory. And often that's what he did if you look at the disciples who did he choose mostly? Fishermen, you know, without much of an education. And look what they did when God was in it because they could tell that God had been with them. And that's what's important. So when we think about this word love, <clears throat> when you think about uh, Old Testament wisdom you think of Hebrew wisdom and you think, think of the New Testament wisdom. Until we are rightly related to God, we will be cruel to other men. Take it in the matter of love. If I am not rightly related first to God, then my love will be cruel because I will demand from a human being something which he or she can never give. There is only one being that can truly supply or satisfy the last aching abyss of the human heart and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. That's why sometimes a lot of marriages don't work because that person gets married and they think that that person should give them satisfaction. And if they don't, they think, well, I got to find somebody else because that person's not satisfying my needs. But really it's an emptiness in their heart because Jesus Christ has not satisfied the inner need of their heart. If that is satisfied, then that spouse can make us happy. Because we're not looking to them for something they cannot give us. Drink deep and full of the love of Christ, and we will not demand the impossible from earth's love. And that type of love will grow within us. So if you look at Luke chapter 10 this morning, and you've all read this many times, you've had studies on it over and over about the Samaritan. Luke chapter 10 in verse 25. 
Now, this man that asked Jesus the question, here it says that he was a lawyer. Now, a lawyer here is like a professor would be in a university today, one who studied the Scripture. <clears throat> this man was well-versed in the Old Testament law. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 10 of Luke, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Now, pay particular attention to that word tempted. There's a reason that that word is there. Now, if you'll think about constantly the scribes and Pharisees were trying to back Jesus in a corner and find fault with him. And so here's another one. He's got an agenda. And we know that agenda is there because of the word tempted. Saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, he said unto him, What is written in the law, how readest thou? And he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now, we realize that's the perfect answer, right? Because love is the center of, of the Bible. God is love, right? He is love. And therefore, we are to be, as his children, also those that love God and love our neighbor. So he answered rightly, but what was his agenda? And he said unto him, verse 28, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing, again here now, look, but he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now if you think back to when they brought the adulterous woman before Jesus, and what was the commandment? Stoner. And Jesus didn't say, don't stone her. He just said, he that is without sin, let him catch the first stone. So they were trying to back him in a corner then. But you know what? They all left with their head down because Jesus outsmarted them. I think what he wrote in the sand that day was their sin right beside their name. I believe that's what they saw, and that's why they walked out. They couldn't cast a stone at her because they were guilty themselves. Jesus always is the one that's going to reveal the truth, but he's also going to show the falseness in others. And so verse 30, he says, And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, and when you see that word but, you know things are fixing to change. <laughs> it's not going down the same course. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. There's the key word. He had compassion. The Levite and the priest did not have compassion. But this Samaritan did. In verse 34, And went to him, and did what? Bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and did what? Took care of him. A lot of difference, isn't it? The Samaritan had something in his heart the Levite and the priest did not have. 
And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do what? Likewise, the same way that he had taken care of the wounded man, you are to go and do likewise. So you see, when you take these three different types of people here in this story that Jesus told, and I believe it's a true story because when he says a certain man, he's talking about an individual that it really happened to. The first type are the robbers. And what is yours is mine at whatever cost is the way a robber looks at it. And the robbers will take whatever they need through violence, coercion, and whatever means necessary. And they leave behind people that are broken and bruised, just like these robbers left this man behind. And so their thought is, whatever is yours is mine if I want it. And don't we see that every day on the TV if you turn it on and watch the news? They're going to get what they want. It doesn't matter who they harm or who they hurt in the process. They have no compassion, no thoughtfulness for what they leave behind. And then you have the second type of person whose ethic is what is mine is mine and I'm going to keep it no matter what the cost is to be able to preserve it. These aren't bad people, the Levite and the priest, but they sometimes are deeply respected in the communities. They very likely follow all the societal rules and some even sit on the local boards of their county. But because of what crossing the road might cost them, they put their head down and just go on about their business, valuing their reputation more than relationships. And guess what? Sad to say, most people fall into that category of the Levite and the priest. But the third one, the Samaritan, now, his ethic is, what is mine is yours if you have need of it. You see, his ethic is love. My safety is yours. My security is yours. My resources are yours if you need them. My health is tied to your health. And my well-being is tied to your well-being. If the Levite and the priest were to ask the question before they thought about going to see whether this man needed help, the question would be, what's going to happen to me if I go and help him? Right? What's, what's going to happen to me? You know, the priest and the Levite, for one thing, if they touched him and he was dead, they'd have to go through seven days of cleansing. And so surely that thought ran through their mind. Look what it's going to cost me. I'm going to have to be unpure for seven days. So there were many things going through their mind, but the Samaritan had one thought only. What's going to happen to him if I don't help him? Not what's going to happen to me, but what's going to happen to him? You see, his thought was completely different. And that's what the Lord was getting at with this lawyer, is that he was choosing, he was picking who he was going to be neighbor to. But Jesus was showing him, anybody and everybody that needs help. 
that's who your neighbor is. Now think about this. What if you are the wounded person laying on the side of the road? What if, and we all were, wounded and bruised by sin and by the devil? We were like that man. Who was the good Samaritan? Jesus Christ, who came and bound up our wounds. As he said in Luke 4 and 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me <clears throat> because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, heal the broken brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captive, recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised. And he was reading that out of Isaiah 61, and he read it to those in the temple, and then he sat down and said, this is fulfilled today. Because Jesus Christ has come to heal those that are bruised. We are the wounded man, the wounded woman that was laying there. He couldn't help himself. We couldn't help ourselves. We had to have help from God. And we got it from him. That's why we're sitting here today. That's why we're singing unto the Lord. Because he is the one that came and healed our bruises and gave us eternal life. You see, the love is depicted in the Bible is found in John 15 and 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. That's what real love is. When I got saved, I couldn't in any way explain what happened in my heart. But I knew one thing. I had a love in my heart that I didn't have before. Love is selfless. And before that, I was selfish. You know what I mean? Because some of you were the same way. <laughs> but after that, I felt different. And what does uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and 5? It, love is not self-seeking. If it's not self-seeking, then it's doing what? It's seeking the welfare of another. And that's what I felt in my heart. All of a sudden, I had something in my heart that I knew was not there before I got saved. I knew it was concern about other people. Is this not what Jesus was trying to get across to that lawyer? Is that his neighbor was everybody and anybody that needed help? And then he told the lawyer what? Go and do thou what? Likewise. Do the same thing. That's what he's telling you and me today is that we'll go and do likewise. We are to be the good Samaritan. The outstanding characteristic of love is being concerned about the needs of others and being willing to sacrifice on their behalf. The greatest example of this love, this agape love, is what happened on the cross. That's the greatest example that there will ever be. Some have that cross around their neck. Some have it in front of their churches. Some you see driving down the highway. You see the three crosses. It all represents the love of God. John three sixteen. For God what? So loved that he did what? He gave. And that's what love is. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have what? life everlasting so that's what that cross symbolizes when you see it it is the greatest 
example of love the world has ever known. And you know, you can go to a football game, you can watch a baseball game on TV, and somebody will be holding up a sign that says John 3.16. It's known worldwide. Isn't that something? People know what that means. And probably the only verse some of them know, they know that one because they see it everywhere. But that is what love is. It is sacrifice. It's what Jesus did in order that we could spend eternity with him. When God sent his son to this earth, Jesus left glory above, came to this sin-infested world, and he came in a body like ours. God knew what he was going to suffer on that cross. God is omniscient. Jesus Christ is omniscient. He already knew that there were going to be nails driven into his feet and into his hands. He already knew they were going to spit on him. They were going to mock him. They were going to make fun of him. He already knew that he would suffer every breath on that cross. God already knew it, and yet he sent him anyway. And do you know why? Because without him, we have no hope. None whatsoever. But through him, we have hope. And God knew that. He knew that when his son was on that cross, he was going to cry, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew he was going to say that. He knew that Jesus would be separated from him when he took our sins upon him. And yet he sent him anyway. Now that is love. He knew for that time span they would be separated. Jesus had never experienced that before of being separated from the Father. But he did it on our account. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made him to be sin for us, that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. And in 1 Peter 3 and 18, For Christ also has once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. And so he died in order that we wouldn't have to die for our sins. Because if we died for our sins, it would be in a lake of fire forever. No escape ever. And he prevented all of that. A few hours on the cross, and he spared us the lake of fire. He was made sin for us. What are the outstanding characteristics of love? Well, the very first one is sacrificial, which we've been talking about. The second one is forgiveness. Yes, one of the greatest characteristics of love is forgiveness. Because Jesus showed it from the cross. When he looked down from the cross and he saw all of those that had persecuted him. Those that had beaten him. Those that had nailed the spike. Those that had spit on him. He could have called down 
just one of the 12 legions of angels that he had waiting on him. He could just call one and they'd obliterated every one of them. Just one angel. But what did he do instead? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, one of the greatest characteristics of love is forgiveness. Jesus didn't hold that against them because he knew what was in their heart. And you know he tells us in Romans 12 and 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself. God is the avenger, isn't he? We don't have to be the avenger because he is. Romans 12 and 9, I like to read that from time to time. 19, rather. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Verse 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, if someone does evil to me and I turn around and do evil to them, I'm no different than they are. I'm getting in the same boat with them. If I return evil for evil, I'm no different than the one that harmed me or said something offensive to me or my family. But if I don't get in that boat with them, instead I do good for evil, then what will happen? It heaps coals of fire on their head. They feel guilty because I didn't react the way they did. They would have returned revenge. But when they saw me turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, then what happens? It heaps coals of fire on their head and they say, how can they do that? How can they do good for evil? How did Jesus do that? It's because of love. You see, as his sons and daughters, we are to administer the same kind of love that Jesus did. And that's why we are not avengers. We leave that to God. And guess what? He can do a whole lot better job than we can. And so the next one is unconditional. When Jesus saves us, guess what? From that moment on, we have everlasting life. And guess what? Nobody can take it away from you. John 10 and 28, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The word that is key there is never. <laughs> I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrew 13 and 5. There's another scripture that assures us I will never leave thee nor forsake you, part B of verse 5. And again, that word never is the one that's just like everlasting life, eternal life. You can't pull never out of a Christian's life. <laughs> it's always going to be there. Once you're saved, you're a child of God. Do we sometimes stumble? Do we sometimes displease him? Yes, we do. 
But is there anything that my son or my granddaughters can do that I will not love them? No. Why? I have that unconditional love for them. That even if they mess up, I'm going to love them. You know what I mean. Well, he has the same love for us. Even greater than that. Greater than human love. So it's unconditional. When we become his children through salvation, then we inherit his nature. And love, one of the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit, now manifests itself in us as we submit to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God. The more that we surrender to God, the more that we see God manifesting himself in our lives and what we do. We are to be selfless, ministering light in the darkness. And Christ is the source of that light, which is truth. That's what our duty here is on this earth, is that we continue to minister the light wherever we go. He said, don't hide your light under a basket, but let it be on the top of the mountain where everybody can see it. Never try to hide that light that God has given us. He is the light, and we are a light in this world. If you will turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John 15 and 1. Of course, we all know this <coughs> as the branches. We're the branch, and he is the vine, right? And we're all familiar with this. But there are three things here that I want to bring out that verify a Christian. Verse 1, I am the vine, and my father is the husband man, or the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that bears fruit, he purges, or he prunes it, that it may bring forth more fruit. When I was a little guy, my dad always had a truck farm. He had other jobs, but he always he was raised as a as a son of a farmer. My grandpa came over here, and he came from Italy, and he couldn't speak hardly two or three words in English, and he was a farmer. Had ten kids, had two boys, and those two boys worked hard in the field. <laughs> so my dad kind of had that farming in him, you know, as a child, and he grew up with it. So he always had some kind of a farm. And so we, the boys, would help him with the uh, crops. And he always, when the tomatoes got so high, you'd go in there and sucker them. You know, you'd pull off that sucker so it wouldn't be taking the nutrients that the tomato would need, you know. So I learned at an early age what to do with tomato plants. Well, that's what he's talking about here. He's like suckering them. You know, those branches that are not producing them, he pulls them off and throws them in the fire. Well, if you think on down the way in Revelation 20 and 21, what does he say? He took death and hell and emptied them into the lake of fire, right? So there's another type of fire. And those branches are dead. They have no life in them. They're cast into that lake of fire. They're dead to the things of God. Uh, the word perish that you always hear, you know, in John 3, 16, another scripture, doesn't mean the end of being. It's the end of well-being. So those that are cast into the lake of fire, they still exist. 
They're going to exist throughout eternity. They're going to suffer in that fire. As the rich man said, that he was in torment in the fire. Some people say, well, it's not a literal fire. That's what he said. He said he was tormented in the fire. And so what he's saying here is those branches are thrown away and burned. But verse 3 says, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me or stay put in me. And I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth what? Much fruit. For without me you can do two or three things. No, he said nothing. We can't do anything without him. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. When I read that this morning, I read it many times. When I thought about Jesus Christ loves us as much as God the Father loves Jesus Christ, I just had to sit there and just let a tear roll down my eye. Because I think that's how much Jesus Christ loves us. If you ever have any doubt of how much the Lord loves you, just think about this verse. He loves you as much as God the Father loves His Son. Never think that He does not love you, because He does. And yeah, He puts up with us sometimes, right? <laughs> sometimes we think, you sure you still love me, Father? <clears throat> yes, He does. Because it's just like my grandchildren, they can mess up. I don't care. I still love them. And uh, I'm going to keep loving My son can mess up, and I'm going to keep right on loving him. And now a great-grandchild, <laughs> two years old, that we're taking care of a couple of days a week. So I'm learning it all over again, you know. <laughs> and they can really try you at times. But when they crawl up in your lap, or the other day before she left, she laid her leg on my knee and she said Poppy I really like you <laughs> now if that doesn't melt somebody's heart they, can, they don't have a heart you know <laughs> but I mean that just she look up at you and Poppy I like you a lot <laughs> and I tell you you just can't beat it you know and just think about it that's, that's real love that little child doesn't understand what love is but she's got it in her heart I didn't really understand love when I got saved but it was in my heart. I couldn't explain it to people. But I knew I was different. And you did too. You knew something happened inside of you. God gave you a new heart. He gave me a new heart. And it was filled with his love. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. 
You see, there are three things in these scriptures I just read that authenticates a genuine Christian. And if you look at verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. You see, a child of God is going to bear fruit. That tomato plant that we grew, you know what? It didn't bear apples. It didn't bear persimmons. It bore tomatoes because it was a tomato plant. We as children of God are going to bear fruit because we are the branches. He's the vine we're connected to. The fruit comes from him. And all we have to do is be attached to him. And that is what you will see with a real Christian. They're fruit bearers. Some bear more fruit than others, but still, we're all bearing some kind of fruit. And then in verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. Whose joy? His joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. You see, joy is different than happiness. Happiness is dependent upon happenstance. If everything's going my way, then I'm happy. If it's not going my way, I'm not happy. Joy is not like that. Joy is the second fruit of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Galatians. It's given of God. It comes into us when the Holy Spirit comes into us when we're saved. Uh, Ephesians 1 and 13. So it's automatic that we have joy. But that joy remains in us as we continually look to Him and draw from Him what we need. And so whatever the world throws at us, the joy remains. No matter if we're old and aged and sick, we still have the joy. It can't be taken from us. But the fullness is because we continue to keep our eyes on Him and stay as close to Him. What does James say? Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. And so part of that is on us. The third thing is verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so we realize that love of the brethren is going to be there. You know, we can sometimes disagree on things. It happens, right? But we can also be agreeable in our disagreement because we love each other. And how much respect do you have for somebody that will not voice their own opinion about something? You want them to voice what they believe in their heart, right? but we don't have to be disagreeable in doing it. So those three things are vital, I think, in the life of every Christian. As the darkness grows increasingly darker, the light becomes even brighter. Even the smallest light, you know, in a completely dark room, you can see a lot in that room, just a little bitty match. As we have seen the evil deeds of man increase in unbridled degrees, crippling our nation, With its consequences, at the same time, God's truth, the light, exposes the corruption of unrestrained lawlessness. So at one time we're revealing the light, but also at the same time, when truth stands before corruption, it's going to reveal that corruption. It's going to be exposed. Why did Jesus say, no man cometh to me except through the Son. Why did God say, no man can come to me except through the Son? There's only one way. Why is there only one way? Jesus Christ is the way that we come to the Father. 
And that's why we recognize the love of God the Father and God the Son is because of the price that he paid. That's why there is no other way that we can come to him except through Jesus Christ. What did he say in John 14 and 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. So there's a reason for that is that we understand and comprehend and experience the love of the Father and the Son when we get saved. If there's another way, we wouldn't experience that. And he's made it that one way because God is prejudiced. You know that? He's prejudiced. He is the only way. And he wants everybody to know. What did he say in uh, Acts 4 and 12? Neither is salvation in any other. There's none other other name under heaven given among man whereby we must be saved. There is no other name. He is it. And also, if there were another way, then people would be trusting in the other way instead of Jesus Christ. Instead of completely trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross when he said, it is finished. Couldn't add anything else to it. It was all done. 1 Timothy 2 and 5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man and that man, Christ Jesus. The third thing to me is just like a clincher. God said it, I believe it. And that's it. What he says, even if the other two were not true, but they are, he said it and that's good enough. Anything in the Bible I don't really completely understand, if God said it, I believe it. And then maybe one day I will understand it, but it's okay if I don't. Because by faith I accept it. As the darkness grows darker, may we be reminded that a democratic society was never intended to function without God as the center of its government. And that the people of that democracy would be governed first by the hearts surrendered to the oracles of God. The further this nation moves from God, the more disjointed it becomes. We've seen that in our lifetime. It wasn't like that when we were little. This was a country governed by people who believed in God. But we've seen that moving away. It's like uh, you put a frog in a a hot pan of water, he's going to jump right out, right? But if you have cool water and you put him in it and you warm the water up a little at a time, eventually he won't jump and he'll fry. That's what's happened over a period of time. They just keep adding a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, a little of that. And now people have just learned to accept it, just the way it is. But we know better because of what the Word of God says. <coughs> Isn't it interesting <coughs> that he made, when he gave the Ten Commandments, <coughs> that he had them in a specific order for a reason? He had the first four that had to do with our relationship with him, the vertical. And the next six were horizontal. They had to do with man's relationship with man. He didn't put this one last, the last six commandments. He put the first four, man's relationship with God, first for a reason. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image or any likeness of thereof of anything in the heaven above, the earth beneath, or the water beneath the earth. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. 
Thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. See, these all have to do with the vertical in our relationship with God. And when that's right, just like if our government was in line with God, be completely different, their relationship would not be divided as it is now. What divides man now? Is it Democratic and Republican? It's sin. That's what's dividing our nation today. Those that look at sin and accept it and those that reject it and look at God's word and they accept God's word over what man say is acceptable. Because what did he say in the Ten Commandments? <clears throat> Love your father and your mother that your, day, <clears throat> that your days may be long. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill or murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or his possessions. See, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's what he tells us in Romans 13 and 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so all the law is fulfilled in one word. It's love. And when we truly love God with all our heart, then guess what? We're going to be able to get along with our neighbor because our heart is right with God. But if there's something between us and God, guess what? There's going to be something between us and our neighbor also. That's the way God planned it. Even the simplest thing like the Ten Commandments, God had them in order. Isn't that something? And isn't it something that this country is founded upon the precepts of God? That those that started the Constitution and all the documents, they believed in God. This nation was founded. What 1 Corinthians 3 and 11, other foundation can no man make? Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the only foundation that there is in the world today that will last. I saw all those houses out in California, no, uh, Florida, that they built them right on that sandbar. And between two hurricanes, now they're falling off. They built them on sand. Did they not think that sooner or later erosion is going to take place and they're going to lose their houses? But they built them on the sand. But inland where they built them on solid ground, they're still standing. Well, if a person builds their life on the things of this world, guess what? It's going to be just like those houses. Eventually, they're going to fall. But if we build our house on the rock, guess what? The storms come, and they have come, haven't they? We've been living in a storm. But guess what? It's built on the rock. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We're on the solid rock, and we're going to be here until God takes us home to be with him. You know, if we forget to remember what we need to remember, the result will be fear. But when we remember what we need to remember, then the result will be courage. Right? We need to remember those things 
that are of God. We need to constantly remind ourselves. We need to be remembering God's holy word. When everything is being thrown at us from all sides, we need to remember what we need to remember. He said in Isaiah 40 and 29, He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might and increase his strength. Neither the youth shall faint and be weary and the young man shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. So what does it mean to wait upon the Lord? Is it like sitting out waiting for a bus to come? No. Waiting in that scripture is looking to God and expecting him to do something that's going to be beneficial on our account. They that wait upon the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. And that's how we get strengthened every day to be able to stand against the evil of this world and what's taking place in our world today. You see, we're not here to please ourselves. A lot of people don't understand that. But he tells us in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, Is it 11? Let's see. I think it's 11. Yeah, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Everything was created for the pleasure of God, even us, to bring pleasure to God. A lot of people have turned that around. <laughs> what can God do for me? But it's what can we do for God? And you know when we get that in alignment, it seems like everything changes. I'm not here on this earth to be pleased. I'm here to be a light as long as I'm here. And it doesn't matter whether somebody is our friend or their enemy. We are to be a light to them. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. You know when he talked about when you've done it to the least of these my brethren you've done it unto me. We say how can I love God? I mean Think about it. How do we love God? Well, when he said, you've given water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, you've given clothes to the naked, you've been hospitable to those that do not have, when you visited those that are in prison, when you visited those that are sick, you have done it as unto me. That's how we love God, is by loving our neighbor. That's the kind of love that he expects from us. Have you ever done something and you regretted it and you knew that you shouldn't have said it? I think we all have, haven't we? You see, it should be mind, mouth. But sometimes it's mouth, then mind. And you know you can't take it back, right? Once you said it, it's out there. The Lord showed me about three or four years ago 
He said, quit criticizing and complaining. And you know what? It had gotten to be a habit with me. Because guess what? It's like everybody is always complaining, criticizing others. And I didn't realize how hard it is not to do that instead until I started trying not to do it. But I realized it was a, a rut people get into. Always complaining, criticizing, and complaining about something or somebody. Even ourselves. And you know what? It was a big step for me. I didn't think too much about it at first until I started trying to stop it. But you know, it's a habit that can be broken. Because once we start trying to pray for a people instead of criticizing them, it changes. Somebody talking on the phone and the other party says, have you heard about so-and-so and what they did? Can you believe that? You know what? All it takes is to Let's pray about it. And you go to prayer on the phone with that person about that person. Guess what? It gets silent on the other end because they were convicted by what they were saying. Sometimes we got to be the one to stop what's happening. And things like that are important to God because of just joining in with other people and doing what they're doing is not what God called us to do. If we're going to be a light, we've got to be different. We've got to truly speak the truth and live the truth. And sometimes love is not doing something. Sometimes love is not doing something and doing something. Sometimes it's not speaking when we really want to speak and say something that we regret. Instead, we close our mouth and don't say it or don't do it. Love works both ways. It is being a good Samaritan, but sometimes it's not doing what the world is doing and saying we've got to be different. Jesus was different. And people saw that. They followed him because they knew he was different. He had something that they knew they didn't have and they wanted it. We should have something that other people want and it should be love and they can see it in us and they know it's real because we don't do evil for evil we do good for evil and we don't open our mouth when we need to keep it shut but we just listen and we're praying I learned as a chaplain when you walk into a room and you listen to them talking at the same time you're praying to God Lord give me an answer to what they're talking about. That I'll be able to come back with a scripture or be able to say something to bring them comfort or give them direction. So I wasn't just standing there idly waiting for them to finish. I was thinking and praying at the same time. Help me, Lord, to be able to help this family that just lost their loved one to be able to say the the right words, the right scripture. Using that time And you know what? We should be the same way all the time. Somebody's talking, thinking, Lord, how do I need to come back? Not just out of my flesh, but something out of my spirit. How can I help this person, Lord, to see you and to get comfort from you? Let's pray, okay? Father, I thank you for these 
that are here this morning. Lord, I thank you for the Spirit of God that is here. And I thank you that each one of our hearts, oh Lord, are moved by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And Lord, I thank you for that. When you convict me, Lord, I thank you for it because you're showing me something that needs to change in my life that I'll draw closer to you and be more like you, that you might manifest yourself more in my life, that I might fulfill the calling that you have upon my life. And I pray for each one here this morning. Lord, I heard those requests for those that are sick and those outside of this church this morning that need prayer, Lord. And Lord, we know the things which are possible with man are possible with God. And we pray for those. Some are here that need a healing from you. And we just pray, Lord, that you would have mercy and bring healing to those that need it, Father. Whatever it is, Father. You know every name that was mentioned here. You know every need, even those that were not mentioned that's in our heart, Father, that we feel at this moment. Lord, we pray for that one's need that you would touch. We pray for our country, Lord, that it would turn back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you, Lord Jesus Christ. We love our country, and Lord, we don't want to see it going down this road that is spiraling toward corruption. But Lord, we know that Christ is the answer. God the Father is the answer. The Holy Spirit is the answer to the problems in America. And I pray people in leadership, people throughout our nation, Lord, would begin to turn to you. And if we would pray constantly for those in leadership that they would be saved and that they would turn their lives over to you. And then we begin, Lord, to see the needs of this nation the way they really are. Lord, touch this church. Lord, help provide them a pastor, Father, I pray, that would love these people, Lord, and care for them and would do what is needed to keep this church progressing. Lord, and filling these pews with people, Lord, that will love you and worship you. Lord, help us to be ambassadors of Christ while we're here on this earth. And then, Lord, that day when you will take us home to be with you, whether in the rapture, Lord, or whether we leave this earth before then, that we'll see your face absent from the body, present with the Lord. Touch us now, Lord. Strengthen us for the week ahead. And, Lord, pray for the healing for those that need a healing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.